Welcome to Can't Knock the Shuffle Season 2. I'm your host, Sean Kantrowitz. If you're anything like me, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume we have this in common, you love finding out how songs are made. The stories, the details, the hidden gems, all of it. Here's the thing. Most artists typically only get asked about a handful of their most popular tracks. Not only do fans like you and I want to hear the stories behind all of the songs, but I long have suspected that the artists themselves are pretty eager to share some of the untold stories too. That's why I created Can't Knock the Shuffle. I take an artist's entire catalog, put it in a playlist, throw it on shuffle, and then we talk about whichever songs are randomly selected. It's like live liner notes with an algorithm in the driver's seat. As promised, we are back with part two of my conversation with singer-songwriter Estero. In this episode, we talk about her work with Kanye West on his 808s and Heartbreak album, the making of her classic debut, Breath From Another, and how she decided to only release a trailer of her new music on streaming services rather than put the whole song online. A seriously revolutionary move that definitely caught the media's attention in 2019. All right, enough talk. Let's hop back into it with part two of my conversation with Estero. Song four. I had mentioned to you that there are your own songs and songs that you've worked on and collaborated and featured with other people. And the next song that we have up, it came out in 2008 and it is from Kanye West's 808s and Heartbreak. And the song is called Streetlights. Let me. Seems like streetlights glowing Happen to be just like moments Passing in front of me So I hopped in the cabin I paid my fare See, I know my destination But I'm just not there All the streetlights the lyric you planned is the exact lyric I wrote. Really? Happened to be just like moments passing in front of me. So he had street lights glowing, I think, or he had oh, street lights. And then I was like glowing, happened, happened to be just like moments passing in front of me. And then he's, and I hopped in my cab and I paid my fare. See, I know my destination, but I'm just not there. But the happened to be just like moments passing in front of me. That was me. And the way you know that it's me is because it sounds like something out of fucking Annie. It sounds like something from a New York musical. Happen to be just like moments. Like, <laughs> who says happen to be? <laughs> it's whimsical. Yes, quite whimsical. Honestly, that record has, you know, impacted most music that's followed it. Whether you were a fan of that album or not, it, you can't really deny its impact. How did you guys meet? The very first time we met, he was working at Record One with Mr. Bentley, and Bent asked me to come by and sing on something. Yeah, he was producing. And then when I was, when John Legend played in Toronto at Mod Club, and that was the beginning, like early on in my friendship with John, who had like written an essay to about ordinary people. I heard ordinary people, and I wrote him an essay about why I thought it was such a phenomenal song. I had to be friends with this guy. And I went to see him play and Kanye was there. And I think what's funny is I don't think he'd, this is when the Estelle, he was on the Estelle song. And I don't think he'd met Estelle. He'd just been on her song and he'd never seen her. And it was really loud. And I was like, hey, 
it's a stero. And he was like, oh, dope. Like a wonder song or something, you know? And I was like, I think he thinks I'm Estelle. (laughs) (laughs) And then the way we ended up working together was because John was in town. You know, John, I'd toured, I'd opened for John and we were just friends. And he, you know, he was, he was in town and I was like, Hey, what are you doing? You're in town this weekend. You know? And he's like, Oh, I'm at the studio right now. I'm in Lancashire. I'm playing new demos for Kanye. You should come by. And so I was like, cool. And he played him stuff. And then the whole time Kanye had this, um, had his computer open and he had this like backdrop on the computer, this screensaver that was really beautiful. And I was like, what is that? And he's like, that is the set for my new tour glow in the dark. And then he launched into this diatribe of like every single detail. Like it's going to be, there's a spaceship, I've crash land. There's no more creativity on earth. The wells have dried up. So I go into space and then I crash on this planet and there's only my, Spaceship is the only one who talks to me. I'm never going to have direct dialogue with the audience. It's just going to be my spaceship. And I built all these sets. And he was like leaving for tour in a couple of weeks too. Like he was getting ready. And I said, oh, so who's doing the voice of the spaceship? And he was like, it was like the one thing he totally forgot to deal with. Like he just, and then I just lied because I really wanted to do voice work at that time. So I was like, you know, I do voice work, right? <laughs> so that's how I got that job. I I went into the studio thinking I'm just going to hang out. I arrive at the studio in Atwater, Glendale area. And I'm literally, there's a group of people in there and he just puts a pad of paper and pen in my hands and they're working on Love Lockdown and um, it's playing, it's very loud. And, you know, he mumbles a lot of his stuff and it's pretty much when he vibes out like to the song, it's pretty much born pretty fully intact. And then it's just missing a couple lyrics or words here and there. And I think that's why he has everybody there to bounce ideas off of and then um, to just fill in the holes. And then, yeah, I ended up writing on Love Lockdown. And then I think they, shortly after that, they performed it at the MTV Awards or the Movie Awards or something. And then he was getting ready to like go actually make 808s. And they, he said they were going to be in Hawaii. He was like, really sucks like he's being funny he was like we wake up every day we play basketball we run on the beach we make fucking great art and I was like yeah that sounds horrible he was like you know can't go without the a-team so that was his like invitation like come and I didn't even know when I got there if I was there to write or to just be I think Kanye likes to just surround himself with people who inspire him in general or that he respects their creativity or whatever so I don't know that I was there specifically to write or to just be Estero like just to be me in that environment he and I had become you know friends but the environment was definitely It's hard. I was the only woman in a studio full of dudes. I've been the only girl most of my life. I've been in those environments. It was fun. It was hard. There were moments that were tough creatively. I know that there was this one song he was working on with Mr. Hudson. I had an idea for like a counter melody on something and I wanted to do it. And it was like, there will be, I even have it written down. There will be this, there will be that. But Mr. Hudson already had a song, you know, there will be tears, I have no doubt, there will be song, whatever. So it had a there will be kind of list of things. But to me, it was like, I like stuff like that. It ties things in. I think it's cool. 
what I was going to do though was very different from what Mr. Hudson had done. And I thought it was going to be cool. And I think it was on streetlights. It was, it was a counter melody for streetlights. And I said, can I, can I just try it? If you hate it, you know, you don't have to use it. And he was like, no. And I was like, oh, that's a, oh. But I learned really quickly, like, it's not the look what I can do show. It's the Kanye show. Like, I, you know, I was there for him. I'm there to support him in whatever way he needed. So I did get to do my background vocals on Streetlights. I got to do the Oz, which were, I loved, but it was really painful doing that, knowing that I had this other counterpart in my head that I never got out. Kind of a heavy time for him too. Like, at least from the outside, you know, knowing the narrative of what he was going through personally. Yes, going to Hawaii and like creative hub sounds amazing, but also I'm sure that it wasn't like the happiest that he had ever been. It's weird. Like when, they, you know, you know, someone's sad and you want to talk about it or maybe, but you don't know if you should. So when someone's very clearly trying to just get through, he really just, you know, wanted to work, especially then because it was like a new friendship. So what am I going to say? Like, dude, take a moment to grieve. You know, as a woman, when you're in an environment with your bunch of dudes, when you are around a bunch of dudes, like you want people to respect you, right? There's a thing in this business, like you want people to potentially, you know, you want to be attractive, but you want to be respected so much that no one would dare say it out loud. It's like a lot of juggling for women sometimes when you're in the studio all alone with dudes, or you have to be like, I have to show my big dick energy, which is not my natural state. I don't want to have to do that, you know, so. Is it surreal or has it been surreal for you to have worked, you know, and contributed and been in those spaces and, and all the creative great things and then, you know, some of the more frustrating personal things with somebody who like kind of was already on his way to a coming, but you could really say is or was like the biggest pop star of, of our time or one of the biggest pop stars of our time. Like, is that just a surreal thing to have seen? Is that something that you think about a lot? Like, or do you kind of just remember the time that you guys had in that moment? Yeah. Like the celebrity part of it. I think that's the part where it's like, I'm really from a town of 100 people, which means that like, I'm not afraid to be a fan of anybody, but also like, if you're rude or you're not a nice person or you treat people poorly, I don't give a fuck. I guess also for me, like I was a fan of Kanye before we met and I really loved the first and second albums. Um, and I listened to them quite regularly, but I also like, I don't feel the way a lot of people feel about him creatively I think he's extremely gifted but I don't like throw the word genius around like I don't I haven't seen his IQ test so I can't say whether he's a genius or not I know that he's really gifted like with 808s because of my tastes I feel like 808s was a good record but it could have been a great record and I think that I know what those original like I have access to the original demos and I think that he played it safe on a lot of stuff that was originally actually super dope and that he maybe like panicked and like pandered a little bit personally that's my feeling like cuz I heard I heard what it was before and so there were choices made that were not the choices I would have made for my taste, but I'm also like not a huge star. You know what I mean? Like I haven't had this major success, but that's just not something that's ever really impressed me. Like I'm impressed by people whose musical choices I deeply respect and admire. 
like all the way. Like Prince for me was way more surreal kind of experience than Kanye. Like for Kanye, it doesn't feel. You like some of his stuff, but you don't revere him. Yeah, like I like I like some of his stuff, but yeah, I'm not like he can do no wrong and he's a genius. And then there's also like the personal stuff that comes into play, you know, ways that I witnessed human beings being treated that I just don't, uh, you know, I don't agree with. I don't respect it. That's what I'll say. I've seen him treat people in a way that I have absolutely zero respect for it. And I can have empathy and I can have compassion. That aside, I've had experiences moving forward from that in witness behavior that I just don't respect. So it's hard for me to be in reverence, but I can have compassion for him as just like a human man who's a, who's a mortal and like a mortal being that is doing the best with the tools that he has. I don't think it's like um, any secret that he's like struggling with, you know, mental illness. And I think that it's pretty clear that there's like possibly, you know, personality disorder issues happening. And I think that there's a distortion of reality. And then you're dealing with someone who has great resources of money and power. It's no secret that his ego is skewed and that Kanye cares about Kanye. If you want to keep him interested, just keep talking about him, you know? So there's no, there's no room for anyone else to exist. And for someone like me, who's really interested in genuine connection and genuine deep friendship and real connecting, I don't have a lot of time for that shit. Totally makes sense. And also, if you do actually value and uh, see somebody as an actual human being, you can't revere them because human beings are not to be revered. Yeah. And then just like the nonsense of like slavery is a choice and like, and that I just think honestly, a lot of that is his like, um, just having zero filter between his brain and his mouth. And like, that's the sort of mania is that you're just not thinking before you're just verbally vomiting on everyone all the time. And then when you're as powerful as he is and no one's going to, and you're, you got so many people next to you that are on your payroll. Who's going to like, who's going to tell you you're being a douche. It's from 2004 and it's from the, we are in need of a musical revolution EP. And it is a song called Amber and Tiger's Eye. That's one of my favorites. That's just like a quick love note to someone I had a crush on. I was dating. Amber, tiger's eye, inset in your honey skin, because he was um, a Bayesian man with amber eyes, dandelions and fireflies, akin to your devil's grin. Just It feels like less like a traditional song and just sort of more like, uh, I was like listening to the ocean or something. I'm not, yeah. I'm not uh, articulating this well enough, but yeah. I was definitely not sober during that time, and I was doing a lot of opiates. I remember recording that and... Um, <laughs> as one would guess. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, remind me of who I forgot. I'm calling out for it, even on there. I'm calling out for help. Remind me of who I forgot to be. Replace me back where I ought to be. Back where I need to be. Will your spirit be diminished in the presence of others? Hold fast now. Hold fast now. Hold fast now. It's kind of witchy. I remember I was in this studio in Toronto. 
And there was a latency issue happening that only I could hear. Everybody else thought I was crazy. And it, I was recording there for months and I just couldn't nail vocals. Something was wrong. Every time I sang, it sounded fine. As soon as I pressed record, it felt like I was on top. I was on top of the track. I wasn't inside of it. All the vibe was gone. It was really weird. I didn't know what was happening. Everybody thought I was being a perfectionist and that I was out of my fucking mind. I spent, I don't know, months there, spent so much money. I finally left. And a year later, somebody left a message on my machine. My own manager had told me that I was fucking crazy and that I was being difficult and I was out of my mind. And then a year later, get a message on my answering machine. Hey, Stero, so we were tearing apart the studio, rewiring, whatever. And we found this, discovered this latency issue that's uh, so subtle that apparently only you could hear it. So congratulations on your ears and sorry for, and I was like, it's like the, uh, it's like the gremlin on the uh, wing of the plane twilight zone episode. Like you gotta believe me. <laughs> when I was in that studio, I know that every day I would go and I would put California love on uh, at full blast before I recorded anything. That was my hype song. And then I remember recording that laying on the floor of the studio just holding the mic in my hands, lying on the floor. Songs like that, like it's very shoegazer. It's very like dream pop. That's like my, that's where my high school kid lives. That's me making the music that I love and that I want to listen to. Right. And it's so cool because as you said earlier, and anybody who's like familiar with the songs that you have made, you're not really beholden to any sort of genre. And like, uh, to me, again, we were talking about 90s earlier. I feel like that is such, like, you are such a 90s, like, product. Yeah, 90s kid, a 90s product. Like, again, that kind of seems like it is the, the mode of operation now for a lot of music because walls that existed are not really as prevalent anymore in terms of you can't do that. Or if you, if you, if you do this, you can only do this. And you kind of were early on that. (laughs) Musical ADD. I love that. That was so random that that came up. Cause what a memory. Cause it's like, it's delicious that song, right? Like it's so delicious. But then there's, I also have these memories that come up of like the state that I was in at that time. And I don't really talk about this stuff much. I don't think I've ever talked about it publicly, but like I was, um, I struggled, I struggled with a, with an opiate addiction. I was, I was a occasional user, but I was a binge user when I used during the making of the first, the first album, the end of the first album, and then was clean for a long time and then caught back up in during the making of the second album, which is also partially why things took so long, you know? Very 90s of you as well. All my heroes, man. All my heroes. William Burroughs and like, you know. uh, Yeah. They definitely sensationalized it, you know. I mean, not on purpose, but it was, yeah, that, that was all of our brilliant kind of, that's what they were doing. Part of the uniform, part of the, uh, the starter kit. Yeah. But it's, it's been obviously decades that that is that is a crazy experience to hear a song and sort of see both sides of it. Yeah. And everybody experiences that with songs as well. Even songs that aren't their own. When you think back to them, you can sort of observe and relate to it as whatever whatever your knowledge of the background of the song is or the intent of the song is. But then you also tie it to where you were at in your life when you heard it, or in your case when you made it. So it's not a song about addiction, but that's something that sort of pops up in your head. Right. It's bittersweet those times too, because it's like, there's part of me that's like, I wish I could go back, but I did make beautiful stuff. 
you know, not, I don't want to say because of the drugs um, at all. There's good memories in there, but then, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, like shame stuff that comes up because, you know, my brain goes to like lying in the studio floor and doing something, but then it also goes to like me in the studio bathroom, you know, nodding out. And I had legends in the studio with me at the time I had, um, Larry Klein, the bass player who he was married to Joni Mitchell. He co-produced the Lakota album. This is like one of the greatest bass players of our time. He's the, he, um, played bass on beautiful lie that was recorded during that time, you know, to have someone like him. And so there's a part of me that's like really embarrassed of the state that I was in at that time around people that I have so much respect and admiration for, you know, but then I also can just like have empathy for myself and understand that like, I just have a disease and it wasn't handled yet. You know, like I didn't, I hadn't found a uh, help for it, you know, and I didn't ha- even have a name for it then, you know? Right. Right. And also like, what are you going to like have regrets? Like regrets don't really make much sense to me. I've ne- I've never like, it is what it is. Like what happened happened and you know, you take what you can from it, but regret has never made sense to me, you know, as a useful, as a useful tool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's not useful at all. It's just like, Oh man, like I wish that what was, wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, if you boil it down, I'm, I'm not trying to like make light of the obviously very, no, it's true. It's just, it's not useful, I guess. Yeah. And then ultimately, hopefully, like these experiences that I have, these experiences that I have will be useful to like help somebody else at some point. Soul six. Moving back to 98, I told you it wasn't linear. And, you know, this is the type of show where we get the random B-sides and then sometimes we will, by chance, also get the bigger songs. Okay. The, the hits. So the song that is next here is from Breath From Another. And it is actually the song Breath from Another. This is kind of where it all sort of started taking off. Yeah. I think it was between this one and Heaven Sent when we first started to kind of look at each other like, I think we found our thing. We got something here. That song was always special to me just because I remember once I was actually at a party and Pharrell Williams came up to me and he said, you know, you're the first to do what you did, right? And I said, what? He said, you know, you're the first to do what you did. It was like you were an innovator. And I think I looked at him and I was like, innovate me some food stamps, <laughs> like innovate me some checks because I was poor and bitter. And he, and he did not, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, I remember at that time, for me, I was just, we were just making stuff that sounded cool. But I think that I then became aware too of like, at that time, hip hop and drum and bass or jungle were the two most sort of segregated forms of music. The kids who were into hip hop were strictly hip hop. And the kids that were into drum and bass were like strictly drum and bass. Like these were like lifestyles and culture based 
musics. And, and so I know that we were the first group to like technically marry those two where you have this, like this beat, this like dirty, you know, hip hop beat in the verses. And then this like drum and bass jungle chorus and that that hadn't been done before. I just thought it was cool. Like I just thought it sounded cool. I guess when you're starting out, you are kind of aping a lot of just for the shit that you like, you know, you're like listening to it and you're like, oh, that's cool. I want and you're to- interpreting it through your filter. It's me trying to make, you know, what's thrown at me, like putting my, what I think is cool on it. Yeah. And I remember, I remember being in the studio. I remember writing the keyboard parts. Doom, doom. In the second verse, doom, 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 doom. I wrote that keyboard part. Just remember this small, we were in this studio off of Ossington and Queen in Toronto, which now is very trendy and safe. (laughs) It's directly across from a mental, from a mental health institution. At the time, that was not a safe neighborhood at all. And we were next to us or across the street from a speakeasy. And I remember a young, a young man was shot and killed while we were making the record out in front. And I think that we were living, we were sleeping upstairs from the studio. We had a mattress up there and a room that we would crash out in. This is like the early days, you know, like this, because we made the most of the record in, in our bedrooms. And then that was like, I think we got in like more demo fund money and moved into like a studio. And that's where, that's where we were. How old were you? 17 or 18, 18, kid, baby, baby. And the don't compromise, let's go for the soul. You never saw for the soul. You never saw. So I follow you down this road. Well, you try, but you can't let go. So hold on to years ago. That's me pleading with Doc not to sell out. <laughs> don't compromise, let's go for the soul. You never saw. I'm trying to tell him not to sell out. We disagreed on some stuff, you know. <laughs> I'll try to understand when you're down on your knees in front of the man. It's not a man. It's the man. I'll try to understand. But don't compromise. Let's go for the soul. You never sold. For the soul. You never sold, girl. I think I'm just talking to myself. or what? I think I'm saying to me, like, don't. I'm talking to me. Don't compromise this goal for the soul. Like you haven't done it yet. You don't have to do what he's done. And then me talking to him. I'll try to understand when you're down on your knees in front of the man. (laughs) <laughs> I think a lot of shit was me probably patronizing him. But. There's more immature statements that have been made by a 17 or 18 year old on record than something like that. So I, yeah. I think it holds up. The lyrics, I think the rest is just sort of gibberish and like phonetics are really important to me. So like when I'm writing a song, the melody comes first and then like the vowel sounds and whatever. And then I just try to like add words and like now I make a little more effort to make it make sense, but then I didn't. I think I just needed it to be poetic in some way. Feed in the water is not warm enough and you're not woman enough inside your daughter or is not cold enough inside your daughter is not warm enough and you're not woman enough. It just doesn't even, it's patronizing somebody, but it's nobody. It's just an invention in my mind. Again, 90s, 
you know, yeah. 90s lyrics, it was a much looser metric or rubric, I guess. For Yeah, it's gibberish. And then I think they wanted like an uplifting chorus. And I was like, I'll give you your uplifting chorus. Don't compromise. Let's go. It's like. <laughs> Is it a tough record for you to revisit in that way? Like not just for the whatever turmoil or sort of, um, you know, headbutting that might have been underlying a lot of that. But also, I don't know a lot of people who want to, even look at pictures of themselves when they were 17 or 18. So what is your relationship with that, again, separating any kind of drama or, or unpleasant circumstances regarding the making of it? Like, how do you feel about something that seems like, an, I would imagine, another lifetime ago? Yeah, because a lot of it was like my journal entries from like age 14 that I finally just sang about at, you know, recorded at 16, 17, 18 and was released 1920. I never really got it entirely, like what everyone loved so much about it. And a lot of the things that people loved, I had a secret like contention about. Like I, I always hated the song, that girl. I fucking hated it to me. Cause it was, I'm an indie kid. I'm a weird underground snobby indie kid. And that girl to me was really poppy. And it sounds like a fucking nursery rhyme. And I, think people that you know when I was a kid I was like if you like it you're dumb like they forced me to I felt forced to put that song on the record I don't feel that way now but it is still it's never going to be my favorite like there's parts of it I really like it's just the chorus I hate one of these things just doesn't but just it's so um too trite maybe yeah but then it has like cool fun samples in it that are actually like from my I had a little mini voice recorder and it's like me at a campfire at age 16, like high on acid with my girlfriends. That's my friend, Angie Gilmore laughing. <laughs> you got it, man. <laughs> That's if you listen, it's just, <laughs> you got it, man. Angie's like tripping balls and we're at a campfire in the middle of a small town. And I record and I just used to carry around this voice recorder and then we sampled it on the record. But I, there were moments that I really enjoyed, you know, and I know that it's a very genuine record. Like it's very authentic. It's me being authentically me. And I think also very like lazy and a little bit of it, also an idiot savant. Like I wasn't trying most of the lyrics, most of the stuff on that album is stream of consciousness. First try. I was not disciplined. I wasn't about to do 40 takes of anything. They used to call me the one take wonder. And part of it was because I was good. And the other part was because I was fucking lazy. I wasn't going to do it again. You know what I mean? I didn't believe in doubling. I didn't do any of that shit. I would rather do Indigo Boy actually was born because Doc wanted me to do doubles, double myself. And I couldn't decide what I was really going to sing. So I basically just sang it six times in a row, different every time. And then we were like, let's just turn them all on at once and see what happens. <laughs> and that's what happened. But I listened to it the other day because I'm about to release merch, breath from another merch for the first time in 22 years. And I thought, you know, what? while I'm designing this hoodie, let me listen to it. And, uh, it's just, yeah, it's just got vibe, man. It's just a good, it's just got vibe. And, I think I get it a little more now, but I think more importantly than the songs or the record itself, I, I think that it's bigger than me. It came out at a time and it just happens to narrate important moments in people's lives. So the, when people who love that record, they mainly tell me, you know, like, Oh, my best friend and I went on a road trip. We hated each other at the beginning. We were forced to go on this thing together, but then we found out we both really love this record. And we listened to it all the way to fucking Ohio. And now we're best friends for life. And, or, you know, um, I met my first girlfriend and da da da, or I, my heart broke or like, it's, I accept that it's bigger than, than me. It has very little to do with me. It has to do with like 
the the record is something of itself that album but i'm glad because i think that it also represents a time for me when records meant things to me too like i was listening to i remember what i was listening to when we were making breath from another i was listening to a lot of olive um i was super into massive attack and um like bjork obviously um was heavy into shoegazer stuff was big into my bloody valentine spiritualized curve jesus and mary chain so there's all these influences that got in there and then you know badu coming out with oh oh no 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 and like you know and these little things that snuck in the world i know you know like these little i was like oh yeah billy holiday oh yeah this you know things that were happening at that time in music records that were coming out as we were finishing ours were phenomenal. There was so, I mean, the four hero record just being, I feel so lucky that there was just so much cool stuff happening as we were kind of making and finishing up. There was so much to pull from. There was so much to be inspired by and go, Oh, let's do our interpretation of that. To be honest with you, I think now that I'm going back in my mind, when I think about what Doc was really excited about when we were making Breath from Another, it was Timbaland and it was Genuine and it was Aaliyah. Because Doc didn't come from my background of like the UK. I really like the UK scene. Doc was more, I grew up with punk rock with my brother, but Doc was more like the bad brains punk rock and roll kid. I introduced Doc to like a massive attack and bjork and i my rock and roll was more the shoegazer shit so i and i was super into like um martin medeski and wood a lot of weird funk and soul stuff and that was oddly what i was bringing to the table and doc was actually bringing the rock and roll because i remember that like in interviews people would look at him and be like so seems to be very soulful and then look at me and like there's a lot of rock vibe and like he was actually this kid from minneapolis who'd grown up doing rock music and I was the kid that had grown up with like soul and RB. I I'd had a steady diet of Marvin Gaye and um Stevie and there was like a new funk revival that was happening in Toronto and an acid jazz like a big acid jazz scene and we were mimicking a lot of like the UK stuff. But then like newer R&B pop R&B was definitely not really in my wheelhouse that was a little it wasn't really considered cool so that's where Doc came in as well on the more pop side that was his thing and so he was vibing off of these Timbaland records and I'm as a listener coming in going that's just slowed down drum and bass I'm like I'm hearing these Timbaland beats and I'm like that's just a jungle beat slowed down that's kind of brilliant it, it just seems like hearing you talk about all those influences and factors there's like no way that the music couldn't have been what it was the people who are who are involved in it are just ingesting this diet of all this great shit it's so diverse and spread like all over the place it's like the how tail end of the 90s it's 96 97 90 you know it came out in 98 but we're listening to stuff 96 97 this is like you know i've already been at that point from the early 90s i've been on a steady diet of like so i've got you know, I've got like Allison Chains, I've got Rooster, I've got Tori Amos under the pink, I've got Cornflake Girl, I've got Sinead O'Connor Red Football, I've got, you know, Nirvana Bleach, I've got Mud Honey, I've got Pearl Jam, now I've got Jane's Addiction, then I have My Bloody Valentine, then th th The Roots, you've got so much across so many genres 
Yeah, it was, I'm really nostalgic for that time in music, to be honest. Like, I feel like every genre had something really fucking dope. And even like when I started making Wicked Little Girls too, because that was like many years in the making, the stuff that was happening for me that I was really inspired by, like Beautiful Lie, production-wise and vocally, the way I approached it is massively inspired. And I've never made a secret of it. And I've told her numerous times, massively inspired by Amel LaRue, Infinite Possibilities album in particular, that was just on repeat for me over and over and over again. And so she was giving me endless inspiration about how to approach that's where those I, I, uh, and like these weird harmonies and then her choice in you and me going does her just like playfulness. Amel's play, she's the most playful vocal and vocalist in the world as far as I'm concerned and her and Shay feel. So it was a, a huge influence. I skipped, I skipped forward. Song seven. Okay, so the last song is from 2019. It is a song called Give Me Some Time. It was the B-side to Baby Steps. New shit too, baby. <laughs> so it came out in 2019. It was written in 2014. That one I did with my friend Christian Gibson, who also did Baby Steps. It's exactly what you think it is. It's me going through a breakup and I need time to process what is happening. So often I feel like when we have broken hearts, we can have the greatest intention to actually care for ourselves. And, um, not kind of go down the rabbit hole, but we're betrayed so often by our own subconscious in our dream life. So it's like, I would be going through the motions of what I was supposed to be doing to heal, but I would, you know, this motherfucker was showing up in my dreams, you know? So I'm like, if it's really, you know, stop haunting my sleep. If it's really over, then why won't you leave me? Get out of my dreams and into my car no um because <laughs> you're not welcome here i must impose a soul embargo just thought i'd let you know i've closed the borders i don't want you back again won't be rocked again i won't be rocked it's very bjorky you know obviously the cadence even just choosing the words give me some time to process what is happening right very Bjorky. I've never hid my adoration of her nor anything that I may have in common with her for taste of how to express myself. I actually thought about, I don't know if it was you I was even maybe talking to about this. I, I thought once about maybe releasing an EP called, that I would just call Songs Inspired by My Idol Bjork. You did. You did tell me about this. I remember this. I have a couple songs that are like super Bjorky. Right. And I'm like, instead of just like putting them out and trying to pass them off as just my own, I mean, they are me, but they're very inspired by her, you know, and like these sensibilities, they're my sensibilities, but I have them because I listen to her so much. And I, right. and I just, so I'm not doing it on purpose. I'm not trying to sound like her. I just am that now because she birthed me. She really did. 
she's my musical mother. I thought, what if I'm like, no one's really ever done anything like that. What if I just put out an EP and called songs, songs inspired by my, by my hero Bjork or something like. <laughs> I, I'm in favor of it. I, I'm, you have my support. You'll sell one copy at least to me. That fucking heartbreak was one of the worst heartbreaks. It was a tough one. That was a relationship that was only three months. Like it was a sh- very short relationship and it was very painful. I got ghosted. Like for real. Yeah. Those will sneak up on you. Those those will fuck you up. And then you find yourself feeling more fucked up over the fact like, why am I so fucked up over this? If this was such a short, a small like footprint. Yeah. You know what I think it is? I think that because I'd had a relationship before that was, you know, four years long. I think that it's um, when you get to play house and you run the course, you allow a relationship to run its course and you get to live out and try everything. It's like, okay, I've done it. I can let it go when it comes to an end. But it's the ones that are the really short ones are hard because it's like all these things that you never got to do. You didn't, they weren't seen to fruition. So you're left with the sort of like, grieving all that never was the potential the possibilities that are unrealized exactly this song kind of represents you really running your own ship running your own show putting the music out yourself i I thought you brilliantly sort of did this uh at the time of its release and sort of took a stand against the streaming services you know these songs have to be bought you know they have to be purchased directly from you to be heard uh, which, again, I just thought was like a particularly gangster move. Hey, I know that everybody and in, in their mother is trying to get on the Spotify playlist catered to these channels that don't really cater to the artists themselves. And you were just like, nah, fuck that. <laughs> it's like the story of my life. I'm like a little mouse with a big sword. Like, mm, I'm God. Well, that should be the name of your next EP. But for put the put the put the Bjork one on the shelf for now. But Little Mouse with a Big Sword. I just was saying that to my man the other day because I was kind of going through stuff in my life that I had done, and I said, you know, babe, like for all of it, whether it was like bravery or brazenness or just being like, I can look back at my life. I can look back and be like, I I really like. It's not that I was, I don't know. It's like, not that I was fearless, but I just like, I just, I always did what I thought was right. Even if it was misguided, I always stood up and was like, I knew that I had to like fight for myself and that no one else would. I'm just like, God bless that little girl, that obnoxious little girl, like bless her heart. Yeah. The Spotify thing. It's funny because I, I think it's just felt like I just didn't really have anything to lose, you know? What are they going to do? Ban me from the playlist that I'm not making money from anyway? <laughs> that, that, that even if you were like super on the playlist, like you still wouldn't, you still wouldn't be reaping much benefit from it. Yeah. My hope is that this is how I have a vision for the future that I think makes sense. I don't know how to implement it, but I just thought I'd say it out loud. I think that this makes more sense than what we're currently doing. I think it makes more sense ultimately for artists and labels and master holders to utilize Spotify as a form of advertisement to redirect back to what you were doing and to use it as a way to, yeah, to, to advertise and that they can be, you can still monetize that, but that, 
the real money comes from redirecting back to yourself. I think that that's the smart way, but you know, record labels have never been more successful. It's just the artists are getting super fucked, but the labels are, this is, I think one of the most lucrative successful times in record business history, right? For record labels. That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. I would like to see in the future that that's how streaming services are utilized. They are used as a way to just advertise the final product, which is exists somewhere else. Will it happen? I don't know. It's a new idea. (laughs) Hot off the presses. I don't know if this whole thing can be fixed, you know? So, and then what's interesting is that I believe that the last way to make real money in music, aside from film and TV placement and getting placements and stuff like that would be um, from a live show because it's the one thing that you can't replicate it. Like the experience of going to a live show, but now the pandemic happened. So (laughs) yeah. Interesting challenges ahead. Yeah. So I always felt like whoever has a great live show that they're always going to kind of be able to survive, but I don't know. I don't really feel like I'm part of the business so much anymore i just know that whether i'm selling it or not or whether it's in the mainstream world like i have to express myself the way i express myself this is how i this is my therapy this is how i express myself i would like for lots of people to be able to hear it i would like to be paid fairly for what i do those things aren't always in agreement with each other I don't have any of the answers but i know that it's just one step at a time and right now like it's the same thing. I have I have some songs that are keeping me up at night and I have to finish them. <laughs> and I know I'm not the only one who can't wait to hear them. Big, big thanks to Estero for joining me on the show. You want to stay up to date with her on her new music, cool new merch, and a whole lot more? Visit estero.net. Shoot me an email at can'tknocktheshuffle at gmail.com or hit me up on social media at Sean Dammit and let me know who you want to see come on the show next. You can go to questionshiphop.com to check out my hip-hop game show, The Questions, where some of hip-hop's best practitioners test their wits in the world of hip-hop trivia. And finally, Stony Island Audio is the network, and Can't Knock the Shuffle is but one of the many dope shows that you can find on there. Be sure to check out Open Mike Eagle's excellent What It Happened Was, The Dad Bod Rap Pod, Fatherhoods, Super Duty Tough Work, and many more coming soon. I'm Sean Kantrowitz, and I will see you next time. Well, I won't really see you, and you won't really see me, but, like, you know, you'll be listening, and I'll be talking. I mean, I'll have already recorded my voice talking, so really you're going to be hearing recordings of me talking then, but later, after you hear this, when you listen later. All right, you guys get it. Peace.